This wonderful uh, slide is a picture of an excavation in uh, Northumberland. It's in a place called Yeavering. Anyone ever been to Yeavering? Well, it is tiny, apparently. It's, uh, it's a tiny hamlet that is barely even a community of people. And on one of the hilltops, they've found this. It's often that you find on sort of strategic points, uh, buildings of interest. And so this is imaginatively titled D2. Whoever did that probably did that adult education course that I saw of archaeology that just wants to bore the pants of anyone uh, that's listening. So this is D2. And you're like, why are you showing me a uh, building called D2 in a hamlet in Northumberland uh, that I've never heard of? Anyone ever heard of building D2 in Yeavering in Northumberland? Excellent. Now... We live in a place, uh, in a country, that's had Christianity for quite a while. Uh, It seems sort of pretty soon after Jesus died and rose again, there were sort of merchants uh, uh, from the Roman Empire, and they came here and and bought the story of Jesus. And over the years, people have got excited about Jesus. And one of the things you do when you get excited about Jesus is that you get rid of stuff that reminds you of your old life. There's this great bit in Acts where this sort of uh, this town becomes a Christian and everyone just brings all their witchcraft stuff because I don't, I don't want any more of this. You know, this is my old life and I've got Jesus in me now and this is something that I don't need. Well, Christians in the UK have done similar things where we've gone, you know what, this Jesus is so exciting, I've got no time for that old pagan religion that my fathers and my grandfathers used to do. Well, this looks like it is the only remaining pre-Christian temple in the whole of the UK. It seems that Christians have got so excited about Jesus that there aren't any other buildings left uh, that have got an association with sort of paganism. This is it. Which I I find fascinating that, that there, there were a lot of pagan temples probably around, but this is the only one left and it's kind of on the outskirts. And if you go into uh, building D2, um, it looks like there was no, there's no sign of it being used for domestic purposes. You can often tell if something's been used for sort of cooking and, and sleeping in and keeping animals in. Uh, but it looks like um, this had this sacred purpose of sort of pagan worship. And there is a little uh, sign um, up here that says bone stack and basically it's this wall that's full of ox skulls and it looks like all these oxen were sacrificed and their skulls kept for the gods apparently gods like ox skulls um, before Jesus came and it looks like um, in the middle there I, I'm not sure it's shown here but in the middle there are two uh, holes and the experts have looked at these and obviously um, they've worked it out better than I they've seen these holes and they said these holes are for poles okay so you put a pole in the hole what next well apparently as you put a pole in the hole on the top you have a picture of a god you have a physical uh, description of what this god that they worshipped 
looks like. I don't know whether you've noticed it, but it's quite widespread for religions around the world to have an image of their God. If you go to uh, uh, Egypt, if you go and uh, uh, go to the, some of the older uh, sort of civilizations, they will have pictures of what they thought their gods looked like. We like to have something to look at and worship. In the Old Testament, Yahweh, uh, he has to work really hard to stop the Israelites doing it, doesn't he? Again and again, um, he's going, you know what, you, you shouldn't have an image of me. It's in the uh, Ten Commandments. And pretty much he turns, he turns aside to have a little word with Moses and turns back and they're at it again. They've made a golden calf or something else. And God has to work continually hard, go, stop making physical representations of me. Stop trying to box me in, in an appearance that I don't have. Stop limiting me with your imagination. And that concept and idea is something that will carry on during this sermon. It's just occurred to me, there's there's a beautiful line of that train of thought in this sermon. God kept saying, I want to be loved and worshipped and obeyed for who I am, not what you think I look like. Not what your experiences say I am. It's who I am, not your projection onto me. So, if you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Peter 1 verse 8. It says this. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Doesn't that sound good? I like it when authors talk about inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So Peter's writing to these Christians in Turkey, and he is saying, you love Jesus and you haven't seen him. He's saying to them, I know that you really love my saviour, and you haven't had the privilege of seeing him with your eyes. And it's um, two things I want to sort of raise uh, here, is that Jesus is the exact representation of God the Father. When we look at Jesus, we see the Father. When you look at your painting of God with his sort of white skin and beard, that is not him. When you look at, is it Evan Almighty with, um, who's the actor? The, the, uh, who's the, who plays God though? Morgan. Morgan Freeman, isn't it? And uh, so all these different um, images of God, they are not God, but Jesus is the exact representation of God. You want to know what the God the Father looks like? It's Jesus. Our Heavenly Father cannot tolerate any images of him to be worshipped. We do not have 
any idols, any pictures. We don't even have any crosses or anything like that up the front. It is left to your imaginations and to your mind's eye what God is like. And God says, I want you to be very clear that you uh, look to me and to my son for what I am like, not any artistic impression. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes the idea and uh, concept of our Heavenly Father is something we struggle with. Perhaps we've had a bad dad, or perhaps we've had an absent dad, or perhaps some of the stories in the Old Testament we struggle with. And I struggle with a lot of stories in the Old Testament and go, how can you reconcile that with God the Father? How is he someone to be worshipped? And then you start to go, well, perhaps this God isn't worth my time after all. But then Jesus comes in, and we all breathe a sigh of relief. Because some of the stuff in the Old Testament, like, well, I'm not sure where God is going with that. What is God's true nature like? What, at the middle, is he doing? You know, I don't understand all his actions. And God goes, you want to know what I look like in the middle? You know what my passions and heart and character is like? It looks like my son Jesus. And everyone breathes a massive sigh of relief because Jesus is lovely. It is very, very difficult uh, to not like Jesus. I mean, if you are sort of an uptight religious person who doesn't like laws being broken, then fair enough, Jesus might get up your nose. But anyone who doesn't have that sort of religious spirit can look at him and get quite excited. Who does he look after? He looks after the poor and the needy and the downtrodden and the oppressed and the people on the outside. He looks after the sort of the lepers and the uh, adulteresses and the, and, the, and the people that society wants to take down. And Jesus is kind to them. And he is loving to them. And when someone ill comes to him, he heals them. And when the religious, uptight people who use the laws as weapons to push other people down, he goes, you're wrong. And he doesn't say it uh, by mincing his words. He is not a politician when he speaks to these religious people. He lets them have a piece of his mind. And it is very clear they are not doing well in the kingdom of God. And so Peter reminds us that when we worship Jesus, we are worshipping God. And it is a lot easier to do with this picture of Jesus. We have been given a privilege and insight into the mind of God that the Old Testament prophets would have loved. Those Old Testament prophets of Abraham and Moses and, and Jeremiah and Daniel, they would have loved the insight you and I have to the nature of God through Jesus. And it's a beautiful thing. And it's something to get excited about, something to derive pleasure from. And when you are struggling to say, why God, why this? You look at Jesus and go, ah, you know what? I like that guy. Perhaps I'm in safe hands after all. And then you meet him. He doesn't just become a story to you from someone else, but you encounter him. You meet him in prayer. You meet him in worship. Perhaps some of you, as Tim was leading us in worship, suddenly encountered Jesus through his Holy Spirit. And then you look at Scripture 
and you look at more and more stories in the gospel and you look more and more at the stories told about him and the insights that people like Peter and Paul and John have and you go, he's even more amazing than I thought. And suddenly Jesus becomes ever increasingly important. And then Peter says, you loved him even though you haven't seen him because Peter saw Jesus. He'd spent a few years hanging out with the guy and he knew something of his nature and what he looked like in the face. And so when Peter was thinking about God, he would be able to know the lines on Jesus' face and the colour of his hair and the crookedness of his teeth. I don't know whether that's blasphemy to say Jesus had crooked teeth or not. It's speculation, I admit. Um, But did they have good dentistry in those days? Probably not. And Peter says, you love him, even though you didn't see him. Peter had the benefit of seeing him, and he goes, you know what? There is something special in those people that love Jesus, and they never shook his hand or stuck their finger in the holes or anything else. And, uh, of course, we're going to read this bit. Go to John chapter 20. If you didn't guess the next bit of passage um, that we were going to read, then you need to go away and do some more homework. John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the other disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. He then said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. That is a gracious guy, Jesus. You know, Thomas was like, Yeah, I'm not going to believe unless I touch. And what does Jesus do? He makes him available to be spoken to and touched. Jesus is kind and generous to doubting Thomas. And uh, again, we go, phew, I'm glad Jesus can handle doubt. And then he goes on. Thomas said, without, I think, putting his fingers in the side and going, yeah, I'm just going to double check you, Jesus. I I, I think Thomas said, no, okay, yeah, I'm not actually going to do what I said I was going to do. And then he goes, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Do you see how he's worshipping Jesus? He suddenly realises it all clicks together. My Lord and my God. Um, I had a great conversation with a JW about him trying to get out of that exclamation of worship and praise of Jesus. Um, He got very uncomfortable and it didn't end well. Um, Anyway, verse 29. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. He's just describing it. You know, you wanted to see, you have seen, and now you believe. and, And that is a good thing. You know, Jesus is accepting that. Um, And he goes, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus doesn't tell Thomas off for needing to see and touch him. But he does say, people are awesome if they believe in me without having seen me. When someone 
encounters the stories of Jesus, encounters the power of Jesus, sees the effect he has on people and churches and communities. And when someone goes, you know what? I think this Jesus is the real deal. I think he is God incarnate. Jesus up in heaven does a little air punch. He goes, yes, you see, another one. I don't need to be physically there. They can hear about me. They can have their hearts captivated by me. Their minds can be enthralled by me. And that will lead them into faith. And I don't need to be physically present for that faith to be birthed. And when we enjoy the person and presence of this Nazarene, despite having never seen him. Has anyone ever seen Jesus in the flesh? So I think it might, physic- it might theoretically be possible, but I've not heard of anyone in this community having met him either um, sort of coming out the co-op or something. When we believe in Jesus, despite never having met him in a physical body, that, is a divine blessing. Peter says, it is a blessing to have faith in Jesus despite never having seen him. Christians all the time go, Lord, bless me. And Peter says, if you believe in the Lord Jesus despite never having seen him, that is a crazy blessing. When you realise that Jesus is God incarnate and with all your time and effort and everything you have, and you've never seen the guy, that is a blessing. That is God's generosity to you. Because God has given you a gift of faith where you have seen and believed a truth, and you haven't needed to poke Jesus in the side or kick him in the shin to show that he's real. So your faith, Peter says, is a blessing. And it is something that should make you smile And it's something that you should enjoy. And the wonderful thing is, it's the only thing that matters. Your faith is the only thing at the end of times that will win out. All your doubt, all your uh, sort of self-importance, all your money, all your popularity, all the other things that you think make life living, um, Peter reminds us that at the last At the end, it is the faith that God has given you. This blessing from God will be the only thing left standing. And that is fascinating. Let's move on. So the first segment is called love. Next bit is joy. These are nice headings to have. Um, They won't always be the case, but that's uh, the case today. So what are the consequences of loving God by loving Jesus and believing in Jesus despite never actually having laid eyes on him? What what does it mean? Well, Peter gives this this wonderful phrase and almost every translation has a different way of saying it and each way is even better than the last. And he says um, in the NIV that we're reading from inexpressible and glorious joy. And you're like, oh, that sounds good. I'd like some of that. If, if that's the, the faith I'm in, I might stay there. My youngest son is called Miles because I have a, um, uh, an enthusiasm for uh, the, the work of Miles Davis. Now, this photo 
was taken doing a very, very special recording session. This is the recording session um, of uh, an album called Kind of Blue, which basically is almost the soundtrack to uh, each of my children coming home from hospital, um, because it's just something that that, that Sam and I uh, love. And it's widely regarded by sort of the, uh, um, sort of by sort of popular uh, music experts as the uh, the greatest jazz album ever and i want to read to you a uh, some words so um <laughs> do you notice the only white guy in the photo well uh, here's are the words uh, that we got it's a guy called bill evans so we've got john coltrane here uh Cannonball Adderley, I'd like to be called Cannonball, and uh, Miles Davis, and then Bill Evans. And, the, and Bill Evans says this. He's talking about how to create, how they created the greatest jazz album, and I would say the greatest musical LP you will ever encounter. And it says this. There was a simplicity about the charts, the music charts, that was remarkable. Like Freddie Freeloader, So What, and All Blues. These are tracks on the album. There was nothing written out. Oh, on So What, I think there was an introduction that was written out on a single line. And Paul, he's a bassist that's not in this photo. um, And we played that. And added, you know, a little harmony to it. Other than that, the charts were just spoken, just like saying, play this pretty, you play that note, you play this note. And I sketched out Blue and Green, which is another track, which was my tune, and I sketched out the melody and the changes to it for me and the guys. And flamenco sketches was something Miles and I did together. I think that morning before the day, I went by his apartment, and he had like... He had liked piece, piece that I did. And he said he'd like to do something like that. And I thought maybe instead of doing one ostinato, if anyone knows what an ostinato is, keep it to yourself because I'm not really interested. Um, but instead of doing one ostinato, we uh, move through two or three or four or five different levels that would relate to each other and make a cycle. And he agreed. And we worked at the piano until we arrived at the five levels we used. And I wrote the levels out for the guys And they were just little sketches. And so we have possibly the greatest music album ever. And essentially, it relied on no notation, no language, no written words, just a bunch of highly skilled musicians who started jamming together. And I believe the result is uh, beautiful. In the end, language kind of broke down as they were composing these pieces. And they just dispensed with it and just got on with playing their instruments together to create some fantastic tracks. And I suggest to you this morning that it's quite common for words to break down. I mean, I'm someone that loves words and I I try and seek them out and, and try and explain stuff. But I often start to stutter and even sermons where I've got an idea in my head of what's going on. The language breaks down because it is too glorious to convey to you. I cannot marshal my words to let you know the terrific thing that's reverberating around in my brain. 
Is anyone else like that? Things are just so great that sometimes your words just fail. Perhaps you're just all really good at English or Polish. But I often think that words break down when there is a deep love and that words can't ultimately express it. I think you can encounter breathtaking beauty that to reduce it to words makes it poorer. Perhaps you've been uh, and seen a great landscape and in the end you can't just go, well, it was a mountain and a valley and there was some ponds around. You know, it, it just kind of loses something as we try to use language for it. And, and I think possibly music is a great one for that. You can hear something and you go, oh, that is fantastic. And then you try and explain why it's fantastic and you go, yeah, I can't. My, my language and my words just don't do it justice. As we think of these great things, Peter tells us that Christian joy is like this. Christian joy is a bit like Kind of Blue by Miles Davis and his gang. The conventional thinking in terms of words and concepts, they break down when trying to describe the joy of a Christian believer. Um, And you're like, what, Kevin? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I really like this. Um, Basically, the moment you try to explain 1 Corinthians 2, I kind of think you've lost it. But just let me read you these brilliant words. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, it says, um, Paul is writing, to the uh, Christians in Corinth, he goes, However, as it is written, no eye has seen what no ear has heard and what no mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. You have no category in your awesome brain that can do algebra and pay direct debits and drive a car while chewing gum, your awesome mind that is capable of so much, it cannot conceive of what God has prepared for you, for those that love him. Basically, language starts to just fall out. You can't do anything more. You have to sort of meditate on that. This is the sort of passage that you go, you know, I'm going to pray on that. I can't explain it and I can't add to it or take away. It's just beautiful. And he goes on. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. So Paul is saying there was this wonderful promise in the Old Testament that God would go beyond what you could think or imagine or see or hear or experience. And Paul is saying that is something that Christians now can entertain because God's Spirit is with them. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. I don't know how 
your faith is, whether you're quite happily being a really shallow believer or whether you want to be like that sort of deep, profound one that everybody talks to and goes, I just want to be a Christian. I've just spoken to you for four minutes and I think you're amazing and your saviour must be awesome and I just want to repent and give my life to Jesus. Well, that's the sort of person I'd like to be, someone that knows the deep things of God and we're told here that the Spirit knows the deep things of God and conveys it to us. And you're like, oh, I'd like some of that. Suddenly, church becomes an investment rather than an hour and a half that you have to sort of bear until you can get back to eating and drinking. So it goes, uh, for who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them. In the same, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept these things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That is worth a whole series of sermons, unpacking all that. But I just want you to hear that just as Peter talks inexpressible joy, there's something so profound that sort of language breaks down. Paul is saying, you know what, you are taught things not just by lecturers up the front, but the very Spirit of God, the Spirit of God that was in the Trinity from before the beginning of time, the Spirit of God that was with him all the way through is in us and conveying to us the deep things of God. And suddenly prayer becomes an opportunity. Suddenly worship becomes an opportunity. Suddenly you go, oh, it's not just about singing along with Tim to a couple of words on the OHP. It is more than that. The opportunity provided to each of us is deepness or depth. When we love Jesus, when we trust in him for our salvation, God's spirit is in us and speaking to us. The Holy Spirit, just in case you missed the talk on the Trinity, isn't a force, isn't a nice feeling, isn't... um, separate from God, but is part of this Trinity. He is uh, one of the three persons of the Trinity. And he's not a temporary experience either. He is this person, just like the Father and the Son. And this spirit relates to us as God himself. And he speaks to us and he thrills us with great works. And that is the promise For Christians, this is something offered out to you. And this is why I really like being a Pentecostal, because this is something that we get excited about. You can't always tell from our Sunday morning meetings, but it is something to allow yourselves to get a bit free with. Some of you were even happy to clap along to a song. 
But there's more than that. I mean, so I've been to some Pentecostal meetings where you cannot stand still, where you cannot have your feet rooted to the floor, where you cannot mumble your words because you are the odd one out, because you are uh, suddenly uh, part of a community that is thrilled to shout and dance and sing. Because the Spirit is really good. And he loves to get people excited about Jesus. And what he says is generally not audible sound waves. The Spirit doesn't get sort of sound waves and sort of manipulate them so they go into your ear and you recognise them as a voice. That's what people do, but God is Spirit. Instead, God bypasses your eardrum and talks to your middle. And he says, here I am, let me talk to you. And you know what? Words aren't a boundary to him. Just as uh, I fail again and again to try and express what is going on, uh, the Spirit doesn't. He tells you perfectly what he needs you to hear. There is this, uh, well, I read, it, read from him in the beginning. There's this great guy called uh, Justin Martyr, um, sort of born around 100 AD. Um, and he starts off his life by looking at all these different philosophies and, and, he, and uh, he enjoys being clever and, and thinking well. Um, and then suddenly he encounters Christianity. And the thing that kind of moved him from a place of this is true and that isn't true and a place of cerebral uh, pomposity is that he talks about a fire being kindled in his soul. And you're like, oh, that sounds good. I don't want facts. I don't want methods. I want a fire in my soul. And that's what this guy, uh, sort of 1900 years ago, says, you know what, that was the real deal. I had all these philosophies and ideas, but it was that fire in my soul that moved me from disbelief to belief. And that fire in the soul has a name, and his name is Holy Spirit, and he reaches out to each of us and says, you can have that too. That tepid, watered-down religion where you are happy just to let church life wash over you and avoid as many meetings as you can get away with and still be called a Christian, that loses, goes into the distance And the Spirit excites you. And you go, you know, I'm going to go to church meetings even if the person that leads them is boring. Even if Kevin is there with his inadequacy about talking in English language. I'm going to go there because the Spirit is in me and the Spirit loves it when we get together. Generations of believers have encountered this. People don't do church just because they've got nothing better to do. And we haven't done church for 2,000 years just because we've got nothing better to do. But you know what? The, the Sunday schedule on terrestrial TV is a bit poor, so we'll just go to church. Because the Holy Spirit is in us. And even if the meeting is badly planned and you have to meet in a cold school hall, you go, you know, I'd rather do that than anything else. We have a basis for gladness and cheerfulness that's dependent not on our circumstances, whether life is going really well or really badly, but it is God's Spirit talking to us and going, 
have some joy. And it's up to us to say, yes, please, or no, thank you, um, I've got an Xbox Live subscription and I can just play Fortnite or Call of Duty. If you've never known that joy, talk to someone about trusting in Jesus. There is that first step where you go, you know what, Jesus, I've had enough of running my own life and I need you in it. And then there seems to be a step where the Holy Spirit comes in a new and special way. And Christians are kind of wrestled with how to articulate that. But it does seem that uh, you can become a Christian and then sort of ask the Holy Spirit in and you thought you were joyful and then suddenly joy goes up to level 11, 12, 1 million um, infinity or whatever imaginary number word that my children like to come up with, like a gazillion. Because that's what the Spirit does. He takes your levels and he just amplifies and magnifies and works on it. If you're sitting there and joy is a distant memory, you go, oh, I do remember getting excited about Jesus many years ago. But I put that behind me, you know, these childish enthusiasms. It's not childish to get excited about God. It's not immature to come to church and want to dance and clap. I would love to dance and clap, but my timing is absolutely appalling. And so I need someone else to start it. If we haven't got clappers, we ain't going to be a clapping church because I ain't going to start clapping because I would wreck Tim's life up the front because he'd be like, you know, Kevin, I'm going to leave the church because we just can't play music because what are you doing? (laughs) And dancing, it doesn't happen just because you've had a good Saturday. You have to listen to the Holy Spirit. You have to listen to the words that we're singing. And then perhaps you have to move out of these chairs because, to be honest, we understand for practical purposes, you need a chair to sit on. I remember when we first wanted to plant the church, I was like, we don't need chairs. People can dance during the worship and then they can sit at the floor at the end. And I was told that that was no way to run anything. Um, so here we are today. You've got, you've got chairs. But there is this opportunity and promise of movement. And I would love us to be a dancing church. I would love us to up the crazy on a Sunday morning for when Tim's strumming that guitar, for you not to be able to hear him because we're all stamping our feet and clapping and getting our hair messy, which is easier for some of us than others. Don't let joy be a distant memory. Listen to the Holy Spirit and let him tell you again about that inexpressible joy. Right. So we lean into this unseen saviour. We reap the benefits of a joy that words can't describe. And then Peter tells us the blessings that we receive now are evidence of something. He says it's the evidence, the salvation of our psyche. Um, And he uses this Greek word, psyche. Um, Now, almost everyone has an idea of what the human being is made up of. If you ask an atheist 
they would reduce us just to animals. You know, we are a collection of biological forces that are rushing around. And, and ultimately, that means all sorts of things like meaning and purpose. You lose them because we're just biological uh, machines that are running around with delusions of grandeur. In Chinese Taoism, the soul has two components. It has a hung and a po, or a yin and a yang, and you have like this ethereal spiritual bit, and you have this earthly corporal bit. And, and that's what Chinese Taoism says about uh, uh, the makeup of people. In, in Buddhism, people have this anatta, and basically the universe is made up, is is in constant change, and that is the only universal truth, that everything is constant, in constant change and that we are to uh, find sort of our peace with that and join that. And there is no God, there is just this sort of Buddhist force that we become one with. In Hinduism, folk have an Atman or self, and it's the same as God, and you kind of become one with him. And that's the ultimate reality and the ultimate thing to aspire to. In Islam, the inner self is divided into two. There is a higher ru and a mortal naf, and, and these two things are what makes up. And some of us are bored already of these descriptions of soul, and the Trinity kind of lets us know well, I think we intrinsically know anyway. We are more than animals. Some of us are more than animals than the others, if you've seen me eat on a, a Sunday morning. But we are more than animals. There is more to us than just living to survive. But we are simpler than the other religions suggest. We have this mortal body that decays. Some of you are in the early stages of life and you go, life is brilliant and this body is just going to carry on forever. And some of us have sort of gone over the peak moment and suddenly all of this body starting to rot and fade. And suddenly we realise that our bodies are not our entirety, that we are more than just our bodies. And so the Trinity has made very clear that we have these bodies, but we are this soul or spirit. And so we have these two components. And that's it. Peter tells us that the information and the sensation that the spirit brings to each Christian are the first taste and the foretaste of the rescue of our eternal soul. These bodies that we've got, I'm afraid they're all going to die. Some of you are like, yep, I know that, I can feel it coming. And some of you are like, but I can run a marathon. I don't know what you're talking about, Kevin. <laughs> yes. Um, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is the last read for today.
2 Corinthians chapter 5, and it says this. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, that's your body if you don't speak Bible. Um, If the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. If you've ever moaned it on a Monday morning, if you've ever felt your uh, joints creak, if you've ever been out of breath, if you've ever come to the end of your physical capability, you know what Paul's talking about. He's talking about that. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we're in this tent, we groan and a burden because we do not uh, wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God. God designed it this way. Who has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. The Spirit is there to remind you your body's going to fade away and die no matter how much you dress it up and that you look forward to eternal life. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith and not by sight. Do you see the importance again of believing of the fact that we don't have a physical Jesus to uh, poke and prod and kick in the shins? If we live by faith and not by sight, we are confident, I say, and we prefer to be away from the body at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Paul says your body's doomed. It's going to die. There's no hope for it. Some of us are a little bit disappointed because uh, we've got, we're having a good hair day and the makeup's in the right place and we're feeling thin and our clothes are fitting and uh, go, don't give up on this body. It's not going to last. And there are some of us that are like, oh, I need this, Kevin, because you know what? I'm not as young as I was and I'm not as beautiful as I was and I'm not as fit as I was and you know what? I can feel things starting to fall apart. I find it fascinating that the people that connect with the gospel most eagerly and in the best way are often the people who are not strong in this life because they realise there's got to be more to this life. There's got to be more to life than what they see around them. The people who are wealthy, the people that drive nice cars, the people who have got good houses, the people who have got perfect teeth, they're like, this is all I need. Life is brilliant. Why would I want anything more? But it's the people who don't have all this stuff that suddenly realise and have an insight into eternity that suddenly realise, you know what? There's got to be more than this. And Jesus says, yes. And that's why he often reaches out to the poor and neglected and outsider because they're the ones that hear his message. Everyone else thinks, what are you talking about? Why do I need to look for the afterlife? Look at my pecs. If you are struggling, then you will get an insight here that the, the rich and famous and beautiful won't get. And that, James says, is a blessing. 
And so Peter reminds us that when it all boils down to it, the redemption of our soul is the best and most important thing. When you want to know what is really important, it's the redemption of your soul. And the Spirit is a foretaste of that. And these bodies fail and die. But your soul, your spirit, your inner being lives on. So not only is Jesus the very best person to follow, not only is the promise of inexpressible joy uh, a very intriguing promise that is offered out to us, but this is all part and parcel of everlasting life. And who doesn't want everlasting life? Please bear your heads. God, I thank you for the patience of everybody. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for these words of life that have been passed down through the generations. Lord God, we thank you for sending Jesus that he is uh, a wonderful man to look at and to trust and to believe in. And we thank you that he died for our sins. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you come into us when we confess him as Lord and Saviour. We thank you that you, Spirit, change everything, that given an opportunity, you will let us have that inexpressible joy that no circumstance or poverty or sickness can take away. And Lord God, I pray that we would be mindful of the fact the most important thing is this salvation and redemption of our souls. Lord, we realise that the physical world around us is not all there is. That what everyone else chases after is not the extent of life. Lord God, I pray that you would help us live with this fuller understanding. And all God's people said? Amen. And all God's people said? Amen.